0: Judges in corporate pockets. Entrenched structural racism. Rubber stamping bad decisions. Legitimizing police lies. The American court system has always been flawed, but never more than now. The judiciary, lawyers, and elected officials have sworn an oath to defend the Constitution, yet they're silent about dark money capturing the courts. We won't be. You're listening to May It Displease the Court. Welcome back to season one bonus episode of May It Displease the Court. We're not quite ready for season two. Plans for that are in the works. But after Trump incited a violent insurrection at the Capitol on January 6th to disrupt the congressional certification of President Biden's win, which, as we all saw, law enforcement essentially allowed to occur... Combined with this unprecedented federal killing spree, which was blessed and facilitated by the ostensibly pro-life Catholic majority of the Supreme Court, frankly, there was just too much screwed up stuff to stay quiet. I am Mary, your host for today, an attorney, an obsessive observer of the law, politics, current affairs, and history. I started this podcast to examine all of the myriad of ways that the court system is and has always been screwed up. We have good news, though. The Democrats are in control of the executive and legislative branches. I think this is outstanding, and it's honestly better than I had hoped for. Um, However, the federal courts are still a huge problem, and I think that we're going to see them used as a sword by conservatives to strike at the efforts by the other branches to make government work for the people and not just for wealthy Republican donors. The federal courts which dark money donors have spent tens of millions of dollars to stack with loyal judges, is going to remain unchecked if the moderate Democrats refuse to support a plan to rebalance the courts. But frankly, more on that in season two. You can follow us on Twitter at CourtPod, or you can email us at displeasethecourt at gmail.com. We want to know your thoughts on the past season, any ideas for episodes for the next season. We also take your comments to heart so you can drop us a review on your podcast apps. Keep us in your podcast feed or subscription so that you can get teasers and announcements for season two, which is going to come out sometime uh, mid to late 2021. Today we are bringing back pod favorite Don Thompson. He is an attorney um, and his expertise is absolutely perfect to discuss the main focus of this bonus episode. If you recall, Don is the managing partner of the firm Easton, Thompson, Kasperic, and Schifrin, which is located in Rochester, New York. He has over 30 years of experience doing trial, appellate work, in state and federal courts. He's even been to the Supreme Court, which I have not. Um, Don was with us for two episodes in season one, episode five, where he discussed his pro bono work on wrongful convictions, which have resulted in a remarkable five exonerations. I cannot stress how amazing that is. So. We have learned that courts get it wrong a lot. And then he came back in episode eight, along with attorney Jill Properno to discuss the death of Daniel Prude. He was a man in the middle of a mental health crisis. He was naked and freezing uh, on a cold night in March of 2020 when he was uh, killed by police who had been called by his family trying to help find him. Police and city officials hid the true nature of his death from the family and from the public for months. And then when the news finally came out in September, the public erupted in protest in support of bringing awareness to his death in support of Black Lives Matter. And the police responded with an astounding level of violence, which uh, both Jill and Don happened to witness uh, some of this. So if you haven't heard those episodes, please go back and give them a listen. Now, it's been about three months since our episode about Daniel Prude and the violent police crackdown, and uh, Don, you and I know that the wheels of justice, so to speak, can turn very slowly. Now, this is a a common complaint from uh, victims of crime, from clients, from litigants, and, you know, I just kind of want to sort of explain why. It takes so long for cases to go through the justice system. And it may seem obvious when I say it, but it doesn't feel obvious to clients, but attorneys and judges handle many cases at the same time. And when we're focusing on one case or a particular part of a case, we can't at that exact moment be working on any other case. So we are constantly prioritizing what is the most important thing that needs to be done amongst all of our cases. I always have a to-do list churning through my head It doesn't actually leave me. It's kind of a a miserable part of my job because even on vacation, I'm always thinking about uh, all the things that need to be done and when. And then you can have a judge come in and demand that something on a case be done immediately. So you have to file a motion or a response, and that jumps to the head of the line. And then a trial comes up, and you have to prepare for that. That takes a ton of time. You're in court. That takes a ton of time. And so all of the other work backs up. And that's not just... Me, it's all of the attorneys and all of the judges. We are all doing the same juggling act. So deadlines are pushed far out to accommodate everybody's workload. But that can make it feel to clients and victims and litigants that the system doesn't care about them and that everything takes forever. And that's a totally reasonable feeling to have. And I don't have a solution for it. But I just wanted to explain, you know, from our perspective, why some of the reasons why. But I digress. And uh, I can also think of a thousand reasons why... Uh, This could be better. Um, But I wanted to, and since it's only been three months, a lot may not have happened, but I wanted to ask Don if there's an update on any of the uh, specifically the Daniel Prude cases that he could share.
1: Well, there is. Um, As you said, things take a long time, um, and all attorneys have a number of cases that they're working on, uh, the attorney general included. So the attorney general is currently um, presenting evidence to a grand jury with respect to the police officers that were responsible for Daniel Prude's death. There has been no result from that grand jury presentation yet uh, because, you know, the attorney general has a bunch of other stuff going on. They just, uh, the attorney general's office just sued NYPD for their response to the protests down there. So they have, you know, a lot of big cases with a lot of complicated evidence. So the presentation's ongoing, there has been no no result or no outcome from it yet. Uh, City Council has uh, initiated an investigation uh, which is being manned by uh, an independent civil rights attorney, uh, Andrew Selly Jr., very fine civil rights attorney, into the city's response to both uh, the prude case, the cover-up, if you will, and the response to the protests. That's ongoing and there's no report that's been issued from that investigation yet. However, there is ongoing discovery taking place. The former police chief I just read today uh, is going to participate in a deposition which is gonna be live broadcast with respect to the police response to the Daniel Prude incident and the interaction with the officials of the city, in particular the mayor. Uh, There are a number of court proceedings that are initiated but haven't gotten very far yet, in part because of the COVID delays, but in part, again, because these things take a long time. There's a case that's been initiated by the estate of Daniel Prude against the city and against the police officers in federal court for deprivation of his civil rights. There's also uh, a series of cases, uh, somewhere between 90 and 100, that are not all formally filed yet, but are noticed by protesters against the city and the Rochester Police Department for the police response to the protests that followed the Daniel Prude case and, and the release of the videotapes. Uh, in the Daniel Prude manner. So things are still ongoing, Uh, not a lot of results yet.
0: Okay. Thanks for that update. Moving on. Don, are you aware of um, what's going on with the criminal cases against the Black Lives Matter protesters and any updates that are going on with uh, with those, not necessarily particular cases, but uh, kind of generally speaking, um, how's the DA's office co- treating them? How are the courts treating them? Where are they at?
1: Yeah, there's kind of a breakdown uh, between the severity, I guess, of the cases that are being brought. Um, there are several cases that have been brought in federal court for uh, destruction of either federal property or uh, there's a, actually an arson statute in federal court, which uh, relates to vehicles of all things. So uh, attempted arson or arson of police vehicles, uh, any destruction of federal property, any other destruction of government property uh, have been brought mostly in federal court. In those cases, I don't know of any of them that have resolved yet. Uh, They're ongoing. Uh, So the district attorney plays no role in those cases. Uh, The other cases, uh, which are, let's say, more minor, um, resisting arrest or obstructing governmental administration or criminal mischief, things like that that are our prototypical state court uh, proceedings are sort of wending their way through the system. We, We had sort of a National Labor Relations Board cooling off period, I think, after the charges were brought to decide whether they really should be prosecuted or what exactly was going to happen with respect to them. And I know, at least with respect to the federal cases, uh, where somebody faced federal charges, the district attorney's office just basically dropped any state prosecutions that they had. Uh, for those people that have only state prosecutions, um, things have not moved too far ahead because uh, those people, most of them that I'm aware of are not pleading guilty uh, because they don't feel that they are guilty. They may be able to uh, to demonstrate not only that they're not guilty, but that they're actually innocent. So that's going to require a trial, you know, an in-person proceeding, which we're not having now because of the COVID restrictions.
0: Well, it'll be interesting to to watch and see whether there's any difference regarding the federal prosecutions, whether there's any difference now that the D- Justice Department is changing hands, um, going from, you know, A.G. Barr to likely A.G. Merrick Garland, but I don't know, there may not be because, you know, we're, we're moving on uh, to talk about, we're going to move on to talk about uh, what happened when the violent white mob of Donald Trump devotees stormed the Capitol. Um, so you're going to have another series of similar charges, although from a very different group, also being looked at and prosecuted by the Department of Justice. So I'm sure there's going to be a lot of scrutiny on how uh, they handle those two. You know, protests, uh, charges from those two different types of protests. Um, although I'm not totally sure, I'm comfortable with calling the Capitol uh, insurrection a protest. Uh, my co-host Lee, uh, Dr. Lee Pierce, who's not here today, uh, she made a, a you know compelling argument as to why they are still protesters, but I think they're better called insurrectionists. Not that they're not protesters of some sort. So anyway, I think that's going to be interesting to see. But something that you know, we talked a little bit about we've when we've discussed police in our previous episodes, but I, you know, I don't think we made the point as strongly as maybe we. I, I certainly, I know I didn't. I'll speak for myself. I didn't make the point as strongly as I was feeling it um, in observing police. But I've been really getting more and more concerned about the uh, the infiltration, or or I don't even know if it's necessarily infiltration, but just the component of police and military that identify as white supremacists or at least sympathize even if they don't identify with a group, they sympathize with it, um, how that affects the way that they uh, protect and serve the communities. And also just the this radicalization of the blue line of the thin blue line flag, which seems to have really amped up in you know the past few years and specifically moving towards uh the the election in November this flag has come out in a way that you know in and being pushed kind of this radical iconography that i don't know that it means the same thing to everybody that's flying it and i think there's there's uh some people you know who really just see it as i support police policemen, you know, that I like and know in my life and, and, other, and other forces that are using it for much more nefarious purposes. So, you know, did you notice, you know, was it striking to you, Don, watching the insurrection and and how the Capitol Police behaved against this, this mob of Trump supporters, armed Trump supporters?
1: Yeah, I mean, a lot of things about it were striking to me. Um, one of the things was that that thin blue line or Blue Lives Matter flag um, always seemed to me like it wasn't really ever about police. It was more a slapback against Black Lives Matter. You know, it's, it's this whole worshipping of police culture in response to, you know, black people protesting because they don't want to be killed for doing nothing. Um, so, uh, you know, that kind of struck home. When I saw some of the video where you know some of these protesters are wailing on the Capitol Police with these Blue Lives Matter flags on their poles. So I guess it's not really all about the cops at all. And they, you know, in the course of this kind of illustrated more of what we were talking about before, the the if you want to call it infiltration or you know permeation. Of law enforcement with either you know right wing or white supremacist you know far end of the right wing uh, sympathizers or or proponents you know there there were a number of documented incidents where the I mean, individuals who were you know insurrectionists or protesters you know flashed their law enforcement badges to to get a pass to enter into the building or to get through the barricades or to you know not be harassed by the law enforcement uh, that were present you know we're all on the same team so uh, let me by that sort of thing so it which is not you know I, I don't think it's really surprising at all I think it's rather rather obvious that you know the the natural personality type I think of those who are drawn to to law enforcement I mean break the words down law and enforcement that's what's important to them. Uh, would be, you know, more pro-authoritarian, pro-right-wing, pro-structure, um, pro—you know—you're going to do it my way. Less tolerant of, you know, all right, you want to do that? That's okay. You know, I don't care. Um, you know, this was a real eye-opener uh, as far as that goes. I mean, frankly, if I think if. The people who were breaking into the Capitol, I, I saw there were two African-Americans, but, but uh, if they had been predominantly African-American, a lot of them would be dead now. Um, they just would not have received the same type of response, almost welcome, as the folks who who went through the barricades did.
0: Well, and I, I think, you know, there's concern amongst Congressmen and women and senators and about exactly how complicit upper levels of uh, the Pentagon, upper levels of police, the Capitol Police uh, were in on this. I think that there's questions because the 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 level of preparedness, the amount of people that they had uh, that were working that day, uh, the 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 way that they set up the barricades didn't make any sense in how they've behaved previously with other protests and it just it was so much less and then of course you have you know the individuals that are that have been witnessed you know seemingly to again open doors move barricades uh, step aside you know and likely it's a mix of people that some be some people were involved in, and a lot of people weren't involved uh, and I think that's actually the real that's Sort of what worries me the most, and and while it didn't come to pass, and I'm so grateful that it did not come to pass, for inauguration, uh, if there was going to be increased violence, what I was most worried about was sort of a a break in ranks, where you have it, say in the military, you have some some divisions going rogue and and following, you know, Trump and others not, and or you might even have that within, and so there's this like break in the chain of command, and who do they follow, and and you know this chaos that comes. From people essentially serving different uh, aims, some working to protect democracy, others not. And that's sort of what it, that's sort of what I wondered, you know, and, and I think it's going to be really interesting to see and extremely important that a real deep dive is done to uncover exactly why were there these failures and and root it out and deal with it and not sweep it under the rug because it's a real problem. I mean, I, we, could, we were very close to witnessing public execution of the legislative branch and Pence, you know, the executive branch. I mean, really close to that. And, and I, I, I think that there's strong evidence that there was, you know, some intent from some people there to do serious harm. I don't know why you would be carrying massive zip ties if you weren't intending to tie up people who work at the Capitol, for you know, I don't, I don't know why you would erect gallows if you weren't trying to send a message of, you know, we're willing to completely descend into um, assassination. And these calls for unity by the Republicans are ridiculous. It's in our national security to root out who amongst us are trying to overthrow the government. So, you know, that's kind of one end of it. And then it was just what was what do I think it was, it was like 63,000 rubber bullets that were shot at the protesters, the Black Lives Matter protesters in Rochester, you know, and and there just was nothing. Nothing like yep. that. And and you know, I wonder, you know, who was left on duty that day? You know, if there was something, if there was some collusion going on or not collusion, conspiracy, here I am. I can't believe it. Oh, Donald Trump has invaded my mind so that stupid <laughs> verbiage comes out of my mouth. Ugh. Anyway, um, conspiracy is, is the correct legal term um, and conspiracy to to aid this. Who was left on duty? You know, I I wonder. Uh, And I personally, getting back to the Blue Lives Matter, All Lives Matter folks, at least in my social media, which is, you know, take it for what it's worth. It's it's not the most diverse, but there are some. And absolute silence, absolute silence about Officer Sicknick, who was murdered. Nothing, not a tribute from anybody who is, you know, going on about Kaepernick taking a knee or... Always, you know, have aggrieved over, you know, Black Lives Matter protesters, you know, looting a target or whatever, which, you know, who knows who was looting those targets and, and property damage. Just nothing. No tribute for, for that officer. Nothing. Total silence. The only person who posted about it was a former prosecutor, is a defense attorney now, who I would say is definitely, you know, on the more liberal end of things. The only one who who made a tribute, and it was it was it was just amazing to me. I was like, I couldn't figure it out. I'm like, did somebody just not in your network for those, you know, blue lives matter, all lives matter people? Did somebody just not make a meme that you could easily share? Like, what is it? Why why the difference? Why do you get all worked up about every other uh, incident, but this nothing? I, I just uh, that was surprising to me. I have to say, I, I expected at least some consistency in actually caring. So I don't know. I guess I remain naive (laughs) still, even after all this, I still always remain naive about consistency.
1: Well, because it was never about law enforcement. It was never about the police. It's about racism. I mean, you, you, you saw the 1776 commission uh, report, which was a, it was uh, uh, described by historians as a puerile document uh, filled with, with lies and obfuscation about you know the purpose of the Civil War and the results of the Civil War and everything else. You know, racism is still with us. We we never after Reconstruction got got slapped back. You know, th- there was never any reckoning, that, which is why there need to be prosecutions now of the people that tried to take over the government and thought they were going to be able to take over the government. You know, we don't we don't have, you know, kumbaya and handholding before the Nuremberg trials. Um, you have to have responsibility and accountability first, and then we can have, you know, work together ability after that, but there have to be consequences, which is, I think, if nothing else, what we learned from the civil war. You know, there weren't consequences, so this long after, people can still, you know, trot out their bullshit theories about how the Civil War was really about states' rights, and it was really about anything other than the continued ability to hold slaves. My, my own personal opinion is, until we get to the point of providing reparations, until there's that level of acceptance. Of this country being built on the backs of slave labor. We're never gonna purge this, this disease. Uh, and we're always gonna have these, you know, these right-wing, fascist, white supremacist nut jobs trotting out their crazy theories about you know basically why white people should be the the master race, you know, forever on in, in the future. You know, there has to be accountability. Or never has been
0: I completely agree and and I and part of it is that it reconstruction and that in that era is not taught in schools and there's been a lot that's come out about you know southern curriculums you know in the and that the state of Texas getting involved in textbook um, design you know to push out these ideas but I I grew up and was educated in upstate New York I went to Bishop Ledin High School in Syracuse, New York. I went to the University of Rochester in Rochester, New York. I went to the State University of New York, uh, Buffalo Law. And I can tell you, there was, I was a political science and a history double major. I was not taught about Reconstruction and what happened to bring in uh, the Jim Crow era. I wasn't taught it from a history perspective, a civics perspective, a legal perspective. all of my education has failed in that area. And so I, I decided, you know what, this is a recent decision of mine. It's my job. It's my job to educate myself. So I'm reading books on it. And I, I've actually been thinking about uh, kind of like tweeting out um, different books that I'm reading in this area so that other people can, if they're interested, can also embark on this education that, that you know, we just we just didn't have. So it's not just it's it's all across the country. This area, this area, this in history and law just isn't discussed, and that's our that's I think our job is to fully understand what happened. I'm reading a Cast by Isabel Wilkerson right now, and something that she she had in there, which isn't you know she didn't make this up, went up but it, but I hadn't really I hadn't really read it before, which is that slavery existed for 12 generations. That is mind blowing to me. I I honestly didn't, I just didn't conceive of it that way. 12 generations of people lived and died and were always slaves, you know? And I think there's a lot of philosophical uh, questions that come out of that. And really as a nation, absorbing what that means and then, when you you know, and then this this little bright spot of like ten years with Reconstruction, we started having multiracial governments, just completely obliterated by the Jim Crow era. And and I I can't imagine how demoralizing that must have been for people to go through. I really I just the level of depression I would have felt living living then I I cannot really fathom how bad that was. And I saw you know. In, the things we've tried to work forward legislatively, given that we only have, you know, 50 seats in the Senate, people have been discussing, you know, getting rid of the filibuster. And I saw somebody on Twitter say, you know, we really should call it the Jim Crow filibuster because that's when it came about. And that's what it was about. It was about giving, you know, uh, power to a minority that really didn't didn't deserve it. So you know, I think that's definitely something I'm going to change. I'm going to call it the Jim Crow filibuster because it is. It's not in the Constitution. And we don't need it, and we don't need to hold back progress by adhering to things that were developed in order to propagate the white supremacy and the and the, the rule of dominant you know of, of wealthy elites over everybody else. But I think. You know, kind of getting back to this infiltration of white supremacy in the military and in police. uh, You know, partly, I think that exists because of the notion of maybe not the thin blue line, but this this code that police have, where nobody knows what we go through, and so we're not gonna we're 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 gonna stick together. It's it's kind of almost mafia like. Like, we're not going to rat out anybody and we're just going to, you know, and so they don't do a good job of purging their ranks of of people that are uh, unfit to do the job and unfit to hold that kind of power. And it is a bit baffling to me because I, you know, I agree as I, when I was a, in the trenches public defender, I agree nobody really who hasn't done it, who hasn't, you know, gone through a a, a Part one intake with Judge Johnson and received a thousand cases plus a huge backload is going to understand what it's like to try to represent all that those people at once. Just one person, you're not going to get that. So, I understand other attorneys who've been through that, but that doesn't mean that if I saw them trampling all over people's you know civil rights, you know beating them up, that I wouldn't turn them in. That I wouldn't you know. That, that wouldn't be a line for me. So it's, it's hard for me to really grasp that level of, I guess, loyalty. I'm not sure what to call it. But I think that that notion is what's keeping the police and the military from doing the job that they need to do, which is to root out these elements, these these viewpoints from uh, from their ranks. The NPR reported that one in five defendants charged in relation to the Capitol insurrection have served in the military. They are people who were veterans who once swore to protect the Constitution. And uh that's a lot. That's 20% of those who've been charged, whereas, you know, only seven percent of all American adults are military veterans. So that's quite a large percentage who have been charged in this capital insurrection. And when we look to police departments they are actually starting to do that now but there has to be procedures for them to be able to do that and i think that there's some real problems with the way police unions are the power that they hold and they operate so differently than other types of unions which are basically about work conditions and vacation days and benefits police unions have evolved in a way that protect that a portion of their work, a large portion of the work, seems to be protecting members from responsibility for their actions, including criminal responsibility. They're going to have to deal with that. They're going to have to come up with ways that other police officers have the whistle, whether it's whistleblower protection, um, so that they can come forward and deal with it. There also has to be a willingness amongst the Upper echelons of law enforcement to actually address this. And I don't know whether that's going to come internally. I think likely it's going to come from public pressure. What do you think, Don?
1: Well, I mean, part of that is the whole pushback against the citizen review boards. You know, no one gets to look over our shoulders. You're not entitled to look over our shoulders because you don't have the special training and experience that we have. So that's sort of the us versus them scenario that you see with a lot of uh, law enforcement mindset. It's very much um, what led to the Daniel Prude situation. Um, Somebody who's in a mental health crisis and, you know, is not complying, uh, although not, you know, physically violent, is not complying with police officer direction. You know, they're trained, it's us versus them, and you're going to follow, you know, our directive, you know, which is why they're not Appropriate responders to a situation like that, you know, it's not, or it shouldn't be, an adversarial situation, but everything for them is an adversarial situation, based on their training. There are exceptions, and you know, officers who are more acclimated to uh, mental health response, but you know, th- that's not what their training teaches them. Uh, they're not, they're not out there to. Uh, to accommodate all viewpoints and everything else, there, you know, their whole theme is, you know, I'm going to make it home for dinner, and you know, if you get in the way, then you know, I, I've got a means by which to to get you out of the way, you know. And a lot of it's training and recruitment. You know, how do you recruit people to be police officers? Why do they want to be police officers? What sort of training do you give them once they're they're on the force? What kind of continuing education? you provide for them? Um, I think, you know, in Rochester, we saw that that all of those areas were, were woefully inadequate as far as selecting out officers who could appropriately deal with members of the public who weren't having their best day. You know, then you wind up with something like George Floyd or Daniel Prude or any of these other instances where there is police officer violence triggered by essentially nothing. Um, You know, one of the things that would be interesting to me, because there is a large percentage of uh, military veteran presence on police forces, you know, how many of these guys are suffering in varying degrees from PTSD, given their, their military experience? You know, how many of them have a hair trigger fight or flight reflex because of that? And if so, why are they on the force? Why are they out there on the street with guns interacting with the, you know, often, most often unarmed public? Uh, And even if you've got, you know, the criminal element out there that you have to deal with, you're not supposed to kill them either. Um, that's not supposed to be like your your default response is, you know, I'm gonna apply as much forces as I think is is necessary here under the situation, which may be you know far more than, than what's needed. I mean, I think there has to be a big change in the the training and recruitment process. I don't I don't know how you get a modification in the overall culture otherwise.
0: Yeah, I agree. Although, as far as training goes, I mean, we saw at the captain's Insurrection that you know they do know how to not respond violently, even when they are being attacked. So it's not that they don't know how to do it. You know, uh, I don't, I don't know. I don't know where you you go with that. I think at, at that point you have to, again, yes, get back to why do some people, some officers, have a hair trigger response to either certain races or certain circumstances. I definitely think PTSD is, is something and I'll, you can get PTSD from just being a police officer and seeing the things that you see. So I think that I agree that's something that you know needs to be looked at and and there's other non there, there's other jobs that a police officer could do that doesn't interact with the public that if that's where you're at then you shouldn't have you shouldn't have that power and authority out there in the street if that's not something that is beneficial for the public for you to have, you know, they don't necessarily have to be fired. I saw this uh, interview, I read about this interview with Michael German, he's a former FBI agent who now studies white supremacist infiltration of police departments as a fellow at the Brennan Center for Justice. And, you know, one of the things that he brought up uh, regarding a barrier to uh, firing police officers for white supremacy was that, was disparate treatment. Meaning that, like, you guys knew that I was racist and all these other guys are racist and they've been you have known that about them and you didn't fire them for it. So you can't fire me for this. And that was kind of wild to me. I was like in thinking about that, it's like so we can't set we can't now set a higher standard. That's going to be a problem. I don't know. I don't know where we go with that. That seems like a ridiculous uh, legal barrier Um that I just you know was looking at last night.
1: Yeah, I mean, I don't I don't know how you address that other than some of these departments that have dissolved the department completely, required everyone to reapply for their jobs, and you know self selected at that point, uh, you know a bit more carefully, um, and, and some of them have been you know quite successful. I don't I don't know that there's any other way to effectively change the culture other than you know, wiping out the current administration and starting again from ground zero.
0: That's interesting. That's an interesting way around that. You know, we kind of get rid of it all and start again. That's not a bad way. Uh, his suggestion, uh, uh, Mr. Germain, was in one way that it could be dealt with is that they're identified and then as white supremacists, and that information is then provided to prosecutors and defense counsel, and they're put on a no-call list or a Brady list, which then, because they're on a no-call List for trials, and you know that that really is going to limit the department and how they can use that officer. I thought that was also a kind of a creative way to deal with that. I don't. I, I think I prefer what you suggested, um, which is to start over. But that was another suggestion that he made.
1: I, I don't remember if it was Cincinnati or Philadelphia. One of those departments, um, they dissolved the entire department. They had a a, a long term. Uh, administrator in the department who was, you know, kind of invested in the new structure appointed as chief and, you know, everybody had to reapply for their jobs. And then they had, you know, a new hiring process for the others. And, you know, a lot of people didn't get their jobs back. I mean, these guys know who the Deadwood is and who the racists are. and You know, it's not a secret. Yeah. And that's
0: what frustrates me these police departments and this whole idea of like, well, we're going to stick together and not say anything. It's like, you can, you can clean this up yourself. I'm also frustrated with the legal, with the, 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 you know, with lawyers, because the amount of lawyers out there peddling these uh, ridiculous claims about election fraud, they should have their license taken. It, 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 we should be cleaning up our own ranks when we can. Licenses are privileges. They're not your right. And if you're going to use your license to overthrow the government, which we've all taken oaths to protect and defend state and local constitutions, or state and federal constitutions, and foreign and domestic enemies, we all take the same oath. When you're breaking that, we should take their licenses.
1: Yeah, I mean, well, so their argument is, you know, this was an illegitimate election and we, re- we really are protecting the government by by. You know, fomenting this dissent and by supporting these folks, and and that's why there needs to be accountability. There need to be prosecutions to say, if nothing more for the historic record, you know that was just crazy talk. You can say whatever you want to, but that was that was bogus, and you know, no thinking adult should believe it. Um, otherwise, you know, we get into the same situation that we have. You know, post Civil War about, geez, what was it really about? And you're going to get, you know, people like Holocaust deniers and you know other folks who will say, oh no, it wasn't that; it was it was this other crazy theory. Well, no, that was disproven. Um, so you got to be able to have something you can point to and say, um, we're not going to listen to that sort of thing.
0: I agree. I agree with that, but I also think we are, as attorneys, are we it's unethical for us to make frivolous claims, and it's you know you do it as same as I. You look at whether or not there is actual factual and legal justification for the argument that's being made. And not in all of the cases was there no argument to be made. But in a lot of those cases, you can look at the affidavits and say this there this shouldn't have been filed. It was it's quite patently obvious. I mean, they lost sixty four cases. And yes, you can lose just because you lose a case doesn't mean that it's of the level that, you know, should never have been filed. But there were those cases in there and there there are instances where attorneys, in my opinion, should lose their licenses and they certainly should be shunned professionally at at a minimum. I think at this point I want to move on to talk about our second topic, the really awful killing spree that the federal government has been on for the last five months of the Trump administration. The federal government had not executed anyone for 17 years prior to that, and in July it executed Daniel Lee, and then it, under Attorney General Barr, raced to execute uh, all 13 people before uh, Trump's term ended. One of the reasons they hadn't executed anyone in so long was because they were having issues with how they were going to do it. And so uh, A.G. Barr And his Department of Justice, they they changed the protocol for how they were going to do executions, and then immediately scheduled five. And so they just pushed this timeline super fast after people had been sitting, you know, on death row for decades. Uh, And a lot of these challenges don't come up until you have execution dates set. It triggers, you know, all kinds of challenges. So they were just they just fast tracked these executions, and then. Once this happened, you know their their attorneys filed whatever was appropriate to try to stop their executions, and they were these were all winding their way to the district courts and the appellate courts and the Supreme Court, and so the Justice Department these in these cases asked for emergency stays and and to you know to jump ahead um, and and not listen to the merits, not have the courts listen to the merits of a lot of these challenges and to rush to the Supreme court. And this happened all kinds of different legal issues. All these people had a lot of different legal issues and that didn't matter. Like what they were arguing didn't matter. It was this rush to execute them. And, uh, it's been really difficult and upsetting to watch. And I know, you know, Don and I are both, uh, I I, pro- I mean I'm definitely I won't speak for you but I'm definitely and have always been against the death penalty. Uh that's unnecessary and it doesn't it it is it's like the state bloodlust which I don't understand. You you have all these people that are like well, you know, they 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 hate supposedly the the people that have, you know, committed crimes and and now terrible they are, but then they are exhibiting the exact same bloodlust to kill The convicted person. It's like, okay, well, if you both can feel that, then I, then why can't you identify with each other? Also, there has been a number of innocent people that have been executed, and 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 we've found out afterwards that they were innocent. So, which of course you can't take them back; they're already dead. Don has personally represented for five exonerations. There are the the court system gets it wrong a lot. So there just isn't any I, I see no good reason for executions uh, to occur at all, particularly in, under the circumstances that have happened um, since since July. So anyway, I'll let Don talk and then I'll, we'll come, kind of have just a discussion about what's gone on.
1: Yeah, I think. Um, the recent rush to execute these 13 people including uh, Lisa Montgomery, the first woman who has been executed in the United States in 70 years, um, has revealed to me more than anything, uh, the political nature of the Supreme Court. Um, It was all about politics. It was all about getting the executions in before January 20th, because President Biden has announced, you know, publicly on a number of occasions that he's opposed to the death penalty, that he may take steps to basically mothball the federal death penalty, uh, which all of these people were executed pursuant to, uh, that, you know, if the government didn't get these people executed before January 20th, there was a very good chance that they weren't going to be executed. And the government couldn't stand for that. So they, with, with the Supreme Court's permission, uh, the right-wing branch of the Supreme Court absolutely allowed this to happen. They violated the law in three, at least three or four. I haven't studied all of them, but at least three or four of these executions were plainly contrary to Letter Law Supreme Court decisions. Alfred, I'm not sure how you say his last name, if it's Borghese or Bourgeois, and Corey Johnson, both intellectually disabled at the time of their execution, a bar that is absolute to execution, but the Supreme Court allowed them to be executed nonetheless. Lisa Montgomery presented evidence that she was not competent at the time of her execution. Another absolute bar to execution. The Supreme Court allowed it to go forward. So, you know, it didn't have anything to do with the law. And this, you know, it's not just me talking. This is uh, Justice Sotomayor and Justice Breyer dissenting separately in United States versus Higgs. Read the decisions for yourself. Justice Sotomayor says, this is not justice. Justice Breyer said, you know, is it about dealing with legitimate fundamental legal issues, or is it all about hurry up, hurry up? Well, here it was all about hurry up, hurry up, because it was an ends justifies the means approach. You know, if we if we don't hurry up, if these decisions actually do get made with respect to these non-frivolous legal issues. There's a very good chance that these executions will not go forward because of the change of political administrations or because of the further development of these issues. And, you know, because we're pro-execution, we're not going to have that. So, you know, it, it revealed to me the poisoning of the Supreme Court by politics more than I think anything else in the whole process here.
0: Well, they, the process that they used, um, going back to uh, the discussion I had on uh, the finale of season one, which is the, the, what was used here was the shadow docket. And uh, it had been predicted by you know Supreme Court uh, jurisprudential experts that you would see the shadow docket being used to transform death penalty um, litigation. And we did. We saw how it was used, and it was used... Um, execute as many people as fast as possible without allowing the merits of their legal claims to be heard. Uh, And I think that that says a lot about the Supreme Court, you know, who also you're going to hear there, you know, they bill themselves as being a lot of the, a lot of them as being very pro-life, especially when it comes to abortion. But that's clearly not the case because this is death penalty litigation. They didn't even care if they heard these very serious legal claims. Dustin Higgs was infected with COVID at the time that he was executed, and he had argued in district court that his COVID that he suffered from had caused significant lung damage, which was shown, and that executing him by injection of pentobarbital, which is the new drug that the Department of Justice under Barr had okayed for execution would subject him to the sensation of drowning akin to waterboarding. They are not allowed to execute people in a way that it would that is torture. That's you know that's an Eighth Amendment violation. So the district court said, "Yeah, I think this is a really important issue, and uh, we need to hear it, and we want to you know we want to have full briefing and argument." And they set the argument for the twenty seventh of January. But you know as we've as Don has shown, that was too late because Biden comes in on the 20th. There was a chance that Dustin Higgs wouldn't be executed. And the Fourth Circuit also stayed the execution, wanted, you know, saying, yeah, these are important issues that need to be addressed. And the uh, the Department of Justice asked for an emergency lifting of the stay so that the execution could proceed and the, the Supreme Court granted it. And without really addressing any of the issues, they just said, yeah, it's lifted. And so, you know, and I'll, I'll include the the Supreme Court decision with Justice Breyer's decision and Sotomayor, Justice Sotomayor's decision. And it really kind of goes through what happened these past five months. Um, so it also it addresses his case specifically and then, then also generally what the Department of Justice uh, has just done with the Supreme, the, the conservative majority of the Supreme Court in order to fast track these executions without any consideration for the the legal issues presented in, in all of these different cases. And I think that says a lot for what the Supreme Court, you know, it's supposed to be this deliberative body that's, you know, ruling on these and and they all remain, all of these issues that have been brought up in each case remain either undecided or they're just possibly they're going to use these shadow docket rulings. The cases weren't briefed. There was no oral argument. There's no real written decision about it, no no real reasoning to push forward uh, executions. Now, if Biden comes in and essentially, you know, puts a moratorium or I would prefer just ending the federal death penalty, then, you know, you may not see that happen just because of the change in administration. But everything is primed for a new administration that likes executions to come in and resume resume just this killing. You know, Lisa Montgomery is one of the saddest uh cases I've ever heard. The facts of her case are really terrible what happened to her and life was really terrible. She was failed, I think by the government at every time in her life she should have she was a victim, abused and brutalized by her own family until her mind broke. You know, that that evidence the Supreme Court didn't care that she wasn't competent and didn't understand what was going on when they executed her. And that's, that is, that's a complete violation of the law. And is really shameful.
1: You know, I think there, there's really a, a, a linkage there between that approach and between the capital insurrectionists. You know, there's this fallacy that these, you know, the right-wing folks are, are law, pro-law and order. They're all about law and order. They don't care about law and order. If it doesn't help them, you know, if it helps us prevail, because we have to prevail. Because what if we don't prevail? Then the hippies are going to run the country and that's going to be terrible. And we can't tolerate that. So we have to do whatever we have to do to prevail. You know, they're all about structure and control. They don't have the the wherewithal, the tolerance for those of other viewpoints to take over the reins and run things. So we have, to, we have to prevail at all costs. And if that means, you know, if you're a Supreme Court justice turning a blind eye to a clear violation of the law, well, you know, that's okay as long as we prevail. It's all about prevailing. And it, you know, it undermines the Supreme Court's credibility. It undermines the credibility of, you know, these other folks who want to You know, promote law and order and justice until it doesn't go their way. And then they want to take down the government.
0: I think it also it also serves another end of the Trump administration and possibly, you know, these Republican donor dark money people too, which is setting up two distinct classes. The if you look at the Trump Pardons, there was a lot about pardoning the political political crimes, uh politicians, white collar crimes, you know, any crony of of Donald Trump, you know, didn't rat him out, you know, they all received pardons, uh, pardons of war criminals. So it's this it sets up this And Little Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't actually know what he was convicted of, but anyway, yeah, and Little he Wayne. He was
1: convicted of a gun charge. And I have I have a bunch of clients who are convicted of gun charges and, you know, think they're rappers too. And they could have used pardons just as well as he could have. I don't know why he qualifies and they don't.
0: Right. So, you know, you have a category of people that are above the law and they, they get all of their Steve Bannon, you know, he defrauded, allegedly defrauded Trump supporters and he pardons him. Although there's two other co-defendants who he didn't pardon. Um, and those guys are stuck. They're stuck under joint several liability, the whole thing. So anyway. So, uh, you know, it's not about it's not about the alleged crime. It's about Bannon's relationship to Trump that gets him the pardon. So, you know, those people, they don't face any consequences. The capital insurrectionists, you know, those people think they don't get any consequences. And then the most severe consequences and, you know, not sufficient uh, protection under the law for, you know, these other category of people. And then, you know, everybody in the middle, we're all gaslit. That's that's seems to be this what they're trying to set up, and the Supreme Court, yeah, they they really did go along with it, and, and I didn't think they had a great represent uh, reputation to begin with, but you know, hurting it even more. I don't know. At the end of the day, <laughs> there's a lot of work there's a lot of work to be done, and I think that you know we can push our senators to uh, question Merrick Garland about whether he is going to be with Biden in, you know, putting an end to the federal death penalty because he doesn't have a very progressive death penalty record. And he also prosecuted Timothy McVeigh, who was executed federal federally. So I think that's important to see, you know, he's not necessarily the most progressive choice for attorney general, but we can still push. We can still try to push our senators to push, to push him and use our, use our voice collectively for that. And wrapping up, Don, I wanna I wanna thank you for coming back on to hash out these issues with me. We are at a moment of tremendous racial reckoning. It is an opportunity, uh, as you said, sort of like a new chance from Reconstruction to move forward and create, you know, the equitable society that we want to have, or at least the majority of Americans want to have. I do think it's becoming harder and harder for members of the dominant race and caste to ignore these issues. I mean, we're seeing it. We're seeing the desperate treatment with our cell phone cameras, and you, you just can't hide behind that stuff. The police are going to have to figure out that they are alive they are going to be challenged because people have cameras, and it's becoming obvious. The police and the military need to do their part to root out white supremacy from, the, from their ranks. They have to fear the consequences if they don't do that. They are not entitled to break the law, just the way nobody else is entitled to break the law. We should be applying the law to them in the same way uh, across the board. Not uh, one set of laws for some people and another for, you know, the dis the, the disadvantage, the black and the brown. So I think that Trump has left a ton of wreckage. Um, we are in a better place than I thought we were going to be at these one. Um, but there's a lot of work that needs to be done. And, you know, while while we focused a lot on the Trump administration last season, the work remains for all of us. So any last words, Don?
1: No, uh, thanks for having me back. I think we're living in very interesting times, and I look forward to uh, hashing out the coming legal issues with you.
0: Yes, we will be talking about more things next season. Bye, everybody. Be sure to check out the show notes for links to source material referenced in this episode, because unlike corrupt judges and politicians, we do our research. Listen, subscribe, tell a friend, and be sure to judge us by rating and reviewing. Post-production by Joe Thompson and theme music by Avery Munger.